When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. This is Carmen Gomez Galisteo. And today I have the pleasure to have with me Anna Swartz, who is the author of Amor, The Search for Sincerity in Colonial America, which has been published by the University of uh, North Carolina Press. So thank you very much, Anna, for joining us today and welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm excited and, uh, you know, uh, do you, blushing, but you can't tell because we're... <laughs> We're recording. Um, um, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for being here. So I'm going to introduce you. So you are an assistant professor of English at the University of Texas, and you are the author of Amor, the, the Search for uh, Sincerity in Colonial America, about uh, which we were we are going to speak about now. And you are also the author of several peer-reviewed essays that have appeared in early American literature, new literary history, and most recently in American literature, uh, for which uh, Anna is the 2022 winner of the Norman Fester prize for best essay of the year. And now Anna is currently working on her second monograph, Ordinary Unhappiness, A Social History of, of the Soul. So tell me, Eddie, this, this book is, uh, is titled Amor. So why the title of, of the book? Um, I am going to confess that I didn't choose the title of the book. <laughs> um, I um, the Omohundra Institute, the folks, um, the Institute for Early American um, Studies, they have a partnership with UNC Press, most of us know this, um, and they have a really great sort of uh, editorial and marketing team. And when I first met with the editors, um, the editors of the series, um, we were talking about the project and um, I just like frankly admitted coming up with titles is like really hard. And if, you know, if the marketing and editing team has any better ideas, like, absolutely, I'm totally game for this. And the only, like, it's hard for me to remember what the original title I pitched to them was. I had my, the title that I liked better, better than the title that I proposed and better, I think, than the title they eventually gave me was uh, Pure in Heart, Um, you know, something like The Search for Sincerity, blah, 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 blah. Um, And... Um, what I like about Pure in Heart and also Unmoored is that they they use like a 
each of them in a different way uses a sort of vernacular um, or a colloquial phrase to describe an experience of the past that I think is pretty, um, I don't say relatable, but like accessible in a, accessible to everyday experience that um, I, I was hoping to achieve with this book. Um, with Unmoored, I think what the editorial and marketing team was going for was something that appears in my um, first chapter. Um, and I think the word unmoorings appears in, I think the subtitle of that chapter. Um, the idea that one of the reasons that uh, sincerity um, sort of, ex one of the reasons that ex sincerity becomes powerful as an ideal for people is in contexts where individuals feel, I'm gonna use this word colloquially, a little bit more alienated from their, their comfort zone, a little bit more alienated from a connection with their selves. And so um, and the fantasy of telling a true story about the self becomes even more dear in those moments when one feels, um, let's say unmoored or separated from a stable um, doc. <laughs> um, I, I liked Pure in Heart just because I, sometimes when I'm struggling, when I feel like I have, uh, I have a challenge in front of me, I tell myself, but you're pure in heart, Anna, you can do it. <laughs> and then I think, why is the fantasy of being pure in heart so powerful? Um, and I think a lot of people, um, especially in the 21st century where, where we're sort of beset by like large systematic and like almost unsolvable social and political problems, um, it becomes really tantalizing to imagine that the self that we carry around with us can somehow remain immune to those systematic um, and sometimes really horrible challenges. But um, I, I worry about that. I worry about believing that that fantasy is real. Um, so that was one reason I wanted to call it pure and heart, but I, I like unmoored better. It's shorter, fewer syllables, um, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I can't relate to that. That has happened to me that my titles were changed. And once the, the publisher told me, no, your, your, your working title is horrible. We are going to modify it. And I said, okay, I, I, I am fine with it. I, I, I don't have any interest. And then uh, the surprise was that the final title was my title. So it was like, okay. So until publicity department didn't came up, didn't come up with anything better. So. Yeah, 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 no, totally. And like, I, I'm going to say this last bit and then, you know, we can move on. Like, I remember in grad school just commiserating with a friend about what it feels like when you're done writing a chapter or at that point maybe seminar papers seminar papers chapters essays and just feeling like okay you did the work of writing the thing but there's still one more hurdle to jump which is you have to have like an informative and witty title and we're like no <laughs> like who has the energy um and yet as soon as you're done you have to start a new project and like oh it's tireless yeah. Yeah, anyway yeah. Sorry, sorry. Uh, so this is the title but well we we, we are happy with it <laughs> thank, thank you so on on the first uh, page uh, you wrote this sentence which i absolutely love because it was really engaging you write uh, sincerity is the protagonist of this book history is antagonist so can you define sincerity and why was it so important in colonial america and why is history its uh, antagonist yeah so um the first part of this answer is going to be a little um, formulaic. It's a sort of, it's an answer I've been giving for several years now, but the second part of the answer, which is about the story of that first sentence, I think will be a little bit more uh, dynamic. 
Um, the way that I've been defining sincerity for uh, for the past several years has uh, consisted of two parts. The first part is um, it, it consists of the idea that we can really know ourselves, um, which is really wild. <laughs> like in everyday life, we think we know who the self is, who the self is that engages with the outside world. But like upon uh, longer reflection, we're a lot weirder on the inside than we tend to want to sit with in most interactions. Um, and uh, somehow it has become sort of acceptable to presume that the self can be knowable. Um, the second part of the my provisional definition of sincerity is that um, not only can the self be knowable, but what the individual says about that self should be socially meaningful. Um, that's also weird. Um, I um, I know that most of us have experiences engaging with other people where there's been a miscommunication, maybe a slight or a harm. And when you communicate like the fact, oh, like, you know, you, you did something that hurt me, often, very, very often, the response on the part of the other party is, I didn't mean to, um, which uh, quite frequently uh, when someone says, I didn't mean to, uh, they also seem to suggest that because they didn't intend harm, therefore they should they should be able to claim innocence from the hurt that happened. And um, and it's it's really fascinating to me that people think that what they say about their intentions should be let's say the end of the story, but should sort of uh, insulate them from reckoning with the consequences of their actions. Um, and so what I wanted to do in the book was to, to slow down with the, the set of social norms and their historical origins, the set of social norms that gets us from the first part of that proposition, the idea that I can know myself and know my intentions clearly and transparently, and my confidence that uh, what I can claim about those intentions should be the last word in social interactions. Um, I, that's that's a set of um, that's a set of propositions that I actually don't think we should all assent to. Um, I think that we should slow down with um, each step of that process because, in some cases, you know, it might be. In some cases, what the self says about itself, um, sure, it's probably true. Uh, but in a lot of cases, it's not. It's just there's no arbiter in those situations besides some fantasy of a god. And um, and so I think if we slowed down with that, the progress between what one knows and what one says and what one expects other people to care about, I think if we slowed down with that process, we would have a much more um, sort of like robust and flexible and generous um, social and collective life. Okay, that's the that's the definition that I'm working with for sincerity. Um, the first line, I still love that first line. <laughs> um, I, um, I'm gonna keep my anecdotes to a minimum. My, my answer is gonna have a two part anecdote. The first is I remember having a conversation with my one of my grad school advisors, Max Kavich, about his book, American Elegy. And his first sentence is, um, among the things that inspired me about the first sentence of his book is that it's short. Um, I think it's something like, um, elegies are poems about being left behind. Um, and uh, I adored the way that that first sentence shifted our attention from what we think elegy is about. Um, 
which is the deceased person, um, shifted the attention from what we think the elegy is about to another party in that interaction, the people who are um, bereaved, um, and then also shifts the attention to the relationship between um, the bereaved and the deceased. Um, I really adored the way that that first sentence um, in a really economic way got us to reorganize our brain um, and what we were looking at. Um, I went through, as we all do, several, like, oh my God, I felt like countless drafts of the introduction and especially countless attempts in that first um, that first paragraph and the first sentence uh, because I felt like I, I had a really high bar that I wanted to live up to. Um, and um, I think what I wanted to get at by comparing by proposing a relationship between a concept sincerity and um, a discipline, let's say history, um, is that the two the two might have a relationship that is different of that is different from the relationship between an object and a discipline. So, like, yes, I, I tell people I wrote a book that is a history of sincerity, fine. Like I'm using more or less historiographic methods to think about a concept, sincerity. Um, but more than that, I wanted people to think about the way that um, engaging with a topic historically can change our relationship to the topic. Um, and to see perhaps that our commitment to understanding ourselves is sincere, our commitment to the idea that we can know ourselves and say true things about ourselves, um, that our commitment to that um, might be an attempt to try not to be bound by history. Um, and that in everyday colloquial speech, conversation, engagement with others, in everyday uh, attempts to know ourselves as sincere, we are sort of continually trying to escape historical circumscription and entanglement in these like large and personal and like sometimes really awful forces. Um, that was what I was hoping to get at in like, I don't know, like maybe less than 10 words. <laughs> um, I've been, uh, I'm really gratified that people have told me they really like that opening sentence. Um, I, I'm not gonna test them be like, hey, so like, here's the exam, what did you get from it? <laughs> Um, that would be a little aggressive and weird. Um, but short of testing people on their comprehension of that statement, uh, I think that's the answer to the test that I will never give. Well, you're going to start by asking, are you sincere? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> which, which, which would be a simplified version. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. That's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful uh, challenge, if not question. Um, yeah. Um, even though sincerity was so big in colonial America, there were people who, who refused to be sincere. For instance, uh, you, you tell the case of uh, an Eton who, who fought uh, attempts to, to make her be, become sincere, even though she went against uh, society. So can you tell us a little bit more about her fascinating story and her fight uh, against uh, sincerity? Yeah, 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 totally. I, <laughs> um, that story is, it's, it's not even like a this is, it is not a story in the way that like, um, you know, like an autobiography or a novel might tell a story. It's like an incident or a series of incidents that um, those of us who are historians recognize um, the challenge to piece back together into a story. Um, and it was really, it was an exciting challenge for me to, um, to try to do that in a way that 
it gave her a little bit of space from the sorts of stories that she knew people in her day were telling about her. Before I, I recap this story about Anne Eaton, I'm going to say something about it that I, I feel is really important that I couldn't really get at in writing a monograph, which is, um, but that I did get at in a lot of back and forth between me and the the, the copy editor, for what it's worth. Um, I, I want to emphasize something about Eaton and that is that what I wanted to describe about her is something that I think most people have access to and probably encounter, I say frequently in their everyday life. They just don't experience it as a an Aegon with um, an Aegon between sincerity and say history. I think they just experience it as being tired, um, and and being tired of of an aspect of everyday life that we don't recognize as. Um, say optional, but uh, we don't recognize as not a given. So Anne Eaton is a, now I'm going to jump into the story and then I'm going to come back to the applicability. Um, Anne Eaton, um, I should say her, her name is Anne Yale Eaton because her first husband um, is the, how do I say this? Her son, the first son she has with her first husband becomes the man whose endowment creates Yale University. Um, so she's part of the Yale lineage, even though we remember her because we remember her through the name of her second husband, um, Eaton, because after her first husband died, um, she married um, Theophilus Eaton, um, who was the then governor of the New Haven colony. Um, and Eaton um, moves with Theophilus Eaton to um, the English colonies in Algonquian territory. Um, and soon after arriving in what we now call Boston, she and she with her husband, obviously, um, moves again to um, the colony that we that eventually turns into the city of New Haven and the state of Connecticut. Um, and she is um, she's like one of the wealthiest. She's part of one of the wealthiest families um, in the all of the New England colonies. Um, and the only reason we know about her, besides um, the fact that she married the governor of uh, New Haven, the only thing we really know about her is that um, at a certain point early in the in that New Haven settlement, she starts um, acting really strangely and starts um, essentially um, physically assaulting everyone in her house. Um, and uh, <laughs> this kind of freaks out her neighborhood. Um, her next door, it might be across the street, uh, her next door neighbor is um, uh, a minister, Davenport, who um, gets recruited to try to find out what's wrong with her. And um, one of the things that I found really remarkable about the document that he writes up as a sort of like incident report um, an inquest. Um, one of the really remarkable things I noticed about this document is how frequently Anne Eaton seems not to want to answer anyone's questions. Um, she is often invited to explain herself in a way that should be familiar to anyone who has read the um, the transcripts of the Anne Hutchinson trial. I'm thinking here of the the collection edited the collection of documents edited by David Hall, um, published by Duke University Press in like 1990, I think. Um, the sorts of questions are really familiar. Um, the questions are questions that are asking the um, the, uh, the let's just say charged individual um, with explaining the the how and the why of their descent. Um, and famously, Anne Hutchinson um, 
gives a really eloquent and forceful answer, a really theologically sophisticated answer um, that sort of becomes the, I don't want to say a manifesto, but the sort of salvo for um, what we now call antinomianism. Um, and um, the the set of collected documents, and this is why I was, was pointing to a specific edition, the set of documents is, is really robust and you can glean a really strong sense of theological commitment on the part, not only of the, the um, theologians who were um, investigating her, but also Hutchinson herself. Um, she comes off really um, forcefully as a, a thoughtful and engaged um, theologian. Uh, but one of the differences that I found really fascinating between Anne Hutchinson, who is famous now, and Anne Eaton is that Anne Eaton won't even engage. Um, she very frequently in this document um, responds to what Foucault would call an incitement to discourse. She frequently responds by just staying silent. Um, and what I found really moving about that, um, that pattern was was feeling something familiar about the many times that I personally have had to explain myself. And I know that the work that it will take to get me and my interlocutors in a shared mental space is a very steep uphill climb. And the rewards are probably very minimal. And specifically part of that steep uphill climb will require me to talk about feelings and thoughts and ideas that um, are complicated um, and that the odds of my exposition landing generously in the ears of my listeners are very small. And I often feel like I just don't want to. <laughs> um, and this is hard to, it is hard for me to communicate that I don't want to explain myself because a very great deal of at least Anglo-American culture seems to presume that we want to talk about ourselves. Um, I'm gonna come back to this presumption that we want to talk about ourselves um, at the end. Um, a, a very great deal about at least 20 and 21st century American culture seems to presume that it is easy and desirable to talk about ourselves. And I was thrilled to find at least one, and then I started finding many, many more. Uh, find at least one example and a very uh, provocative, you know, in this case, violent example of someone who just did not want to talk about themselves and didn't really think that the worth, that the work of um, making visible their interiority was going to be worth the effort. It doesn't mean she didn't communicate about the self. And this is why I think those, those incidents of violence are so important is that um, acts like pinching and beating your mother-in-law are ways to communicate interiority. They're definitely not the best ways to, to communicate your interiority, uh, but they are ways to do so. Um, and I, I, I appreciated the starkness, um, if it's not the violence of this example, um, which is why I began with it. And also because she's so like, if not for this incident, we probably would have forgotten entirely about her because uh, her son became so famous, um, her son and her husband. Um, and sort of moving outward from there, um, I, I appreciated the opportunity through Ann Eaton to reflect on what seemed to be a very early moment in the history of Anglo-American culture's expectation that we want to talk about ourselves. Um, and when I revisited a lot of the um, 
cultural histories of early America, it seemed like all of a sudden everything looked different because the 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 contestations and the the critical debates about the period um, now had different vocabulary. So um, one of the ongoing, I just say ongoing, but early American studies since Hawthorne, like really since Hawthorne, maybe earlier, has had to deal with the um, the charge that Americans early. Anglo colonials um, were repressed, um, and we have a like Hawthorne's so Scarlet Letter is a really comfortable example of what we think repression looks like. Um, and what I, as since then, you know, there, there seems to be uh, a desire to insist know that the Puritans were not repressed. They were not repressed. They really liked to talk about themselves. Look at all these opportunities they had to talk about themselves. They had genres like the conversion narrative to like tell stories about the self, which to many scholars means that they could not have been repressed. Um, to me, that's a sort of, that's not the most interesting question here. To me, the most interesting question is given the available genres to talk about themselves and given the expectations to talk about themselves, how did people deal with the work of talking about themselves and how did they manage um, what I suspect must have been the burdensome expectation that they were always going to be telling truths about the self. Um, so that's what Anne Eaton, I think, um, really vividly shows. Um, and, uh, you know, like, I don't, maybe for my second book, I won't begin with a scene of domestic violence. I was just like, whoa, this lady's intense. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, and Eton, yeah, they put a lot of pressure on on her, but but as you said, she she didn't engage with them. So she, she didn't uh, she did she refused. She rejected all these attempts too. So she was very uh, she was a good example of a rebel woman. <laughs> yeah, and also I mean, I'm gonna say one last thing, and then we're gonna move on. Like I. I also appreciate, and this is just my own perversity maybe, I appreciated that Eaton is an example of like a dissenter who we don't really want to, we don't, we, I don't think we want to heroize her. Like we don't want to lionize her. Like she, she's beating her children um, and she is accusing the enslaved people in her household of witchcraft. Like she's not like, this is not like a girl boss moment where we're like, oh yes, this is our role model. She's just really unhappy. And she's unhappy in a way that um, should, how do I say this, should give us an opportunity to reflect on the different ways that we might be similarly unhappy in the present. Okay, that's all. Sorry, I keep my <laughs> It's, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Um, so maybe not not a good role model, but that is why we speak about her because yeah, she was yeah, so yeah. so so different. And and at least we know something about about her. Not only because of her son or whatever. Because in colonial writings, usually you don't really see many many women. They are only a footnote. So she was the protagonist of her own story, and she didn't want others to reinterpret that or. 
So uh, you 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 also say that well, even though they 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 were repressed and they have a lot of uh, doubts and they suffer a lot because they they were thinking, oh, am I going to be safe or, or not? Uh, you also uh, you also show that the the that the pursuit of happiness was was there in colonial America. We think, oh, happiness, and uh, looking for happiness, that is more of a revolutionary America trait because of the declaration of independence and everything. But but you show that happiness and sincerity went hand in hand in the minds of American colonists already. So what was this interrelationship between both concepts, between happiness and sincerity? Yeah, um, I've been thinking about this. I, how does this I, I've been thinking about this and trying to think beyond this a lot in the past few months because I'm trying to start work on the second project, which was a little bit more directly about unhappiness. Um, I... Um, I think a short way, I, I'm going to try to say this short, and then I'm probably going to want to have a whole bunch of modifications. Um, but let's try the short. Um, I think that one of the reasons that people cling to sincerity in the colonial context, and perhaps also in the in the present, um, one of the reasons that individuals in the colonial context clinged so dearly to the hope of sincerity was because their contexts were less happy and more potentially miserable than they really wanted to grapple with. And one of the, the, the link between the two, I think, is a realization often in Kuwait, but often in Kuwait and usually on the level of intuition, that one's conditions, the conditions that you live in um, are scarier and bigger and more risky than you can really control. And um, I don't know, like I'm a risk averse person. Maybe I assume everyone else in the world is uh, equally risk averse. I know that some people are very bold and they thrive in those in those situations. And indeed, there, there are many cases of people um, in the colonial, on the colonial frontier who thrive in those situations. But um, in general, my suspicion as I read these texts and read more about the historical context um, was that um, people were just like unhappy a lot of the time. Um, and sometimes when you're unhappy um, and you're like chronically struggling, uh, your norms shift um, and you, um, you accustom yourself to greater uncertainty to um you know greater prospect of misery um but that that um the volatility of the external world the unlikelihood of um certain happy outcomes um intensifies i think the gratifications that are to be had in confidence that one can know the self um and um and then there's like a second order intensifying of those gratifications when um, when you live in a, in a small community where everyone else seems to be acting according to the same principle. So there's a lot of like positive reinforcement. Um, and the challenge here, and then I, I think I think this, I hope will answer the question. The challenge here is um, as, as a historian and a critic, um, the challenge is to, um, I don't want to say take people at their word, but take people at their word in a manner that, in a sophisticated manner that acknowledges that sometimes, I say this, sometimes we believe things that are not true. Um, 
And that sometimes the reasons we believe those things that are not true are importantly symptomatic. Um, and when I say of, as I say of many people in this book, um, basically what you believe about the world is not true. Um, it's not because I wanna say that I'm smarter than them, um, but rather because I think it's important to identify the way that like situational unhappiness generates investments in stories that may or may not be true, but that are like the closest substitute to happiness. And that is, that to me seems worth the risk of, of potentially seeming like I'm, you know, reading in bad faith. Um, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it it did. I I follow there, and also you you speak about the Native Americans uh, because the presence of Native Americans in in these lands uh, that the colonists came to occupy was also a point of uh, consideration. So, what was the relationship between the natives, the colonists, and how did these uh, affected uh, sincerity or the lack of sincerity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I think. <laughs> Each chapter sort of engages with um, indigenous figures in and, and specific individuals um, in different ways. I think the chapter that, that um, sort of addresses the uptake of sincerity in Algonquin communities most directly is the third chapter. And um, something I get to propose something there that had been one of the um, sort of energizing ambitions of the book more generally, which was to um, to propose, I say this, to propose that there can be something like dignity in emotional and intellectual ambiguity. And what I mean here is um, that when sincerity is brought into the same sentence with um, indigenous people of the 17th century, like, like when we write a sentence with those two um, sort of keywords in there, often the, the question, often the, que the question that historians have been interested in is the question of sincere conversion. Um, so in, it took a little while, but into the middle decades of the 17th century, English settlers in Algonquian territory um, finally like, you know, fulfilled what they said they were going to do when they first came over, which was, oh, let's try to evangelize these non-Christians and make them Christian. Um, and part of Christian conversion, at least in the Protestant version, is um, to say something and mean it, to say with your mouth that you believe in the Christian God and also to believe it in your heart. I'm paraphrasing um, some passages from the, the Christian Bible. Um, and so English people are like, fine, okay, well, I guess we're gonna do this now. Um, and most historians who have um, sort of slowed down with this phenomenon have um, taken up the questions that settlers themselves were preoccupied with, which is, were indigenous converts sincere? Um, and I um, I get why they're asking, I get why historians have found that question compelling. And it's, it's not always for the same reasons as um, Christian evangelists wanted to know. Um, but what interested me about the scene of conversion as it played out over the course of the 17th century um, was the, the fact that indigenous people expressed desire to convert and that like everyone else in the world <laughs> making all sorts of other decisions, 
might sometimes hesitate. Um, like you can want something and also be uncertain about whether it's the best decision. And I wanted to um, sort of make explicit in that chapter and in the book more generally that we all deserve credit for being thoughtful people who sometimes can't make up our minds. And that um, the specific decisions that needed to be made in that context were extremely high stakes. Um, they were uh, made in like really frustrating, to put it lightly, really frustrating conditions, um, not only of territorial dispossession, but also like deep loneliness. Um, and that um, a decision like conversion seemed like it would answer some parts of those dissatisfactions and not others. Um, and that the question that historians have asked, were they sincere, presumes that anyone can be wholly on board with anything um, when we all know that rarely to be the case in like mature adult life, we are always second guessing ourselves. We are always um, experiencing um, ambivalence. Um, and it seemed really important um, at minimum for um, that chapter and the book more generally as it engaged with um, indigenous participants in colonial life to bring to their lives the same sort of nuance that, um, for example, readers of the English and American novel have brought to their expectations for white characters. And you also devote a, a chapter which I particularly enjoyed about friendship. So uh, what was the concept of friendship in colonial America like? Uh, how can we define friendship then? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> um, I love that that chapter stood out. Um, I'll just say that chapter was the first chapter I wrote um, back when this thing was a dissertation. Um, and um, I, I think that chapter probably means most to me personally. Um, and the rest of the book, when I was revising the dissertation and making it a book, um, I think one of the ways that I explained the project to myself was um, building the infrastructure so that the last chapter would make sense the way I wanted it to make sense to readers. Um, so friendship, um, I think one of the reasons to slow down with the concept of sincerity, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons to slow down with the concept of sincerity is that it can make us more sensitive friends um, to each other, <laughs> like better people in friendship relationships, uh, better people to each other, uh, better people to ourselves, whatever. Um, and one of the things that um, I hoped along the way to um, sort of aerate or give light to was um, how experiences of friendship are difficult. Um, that yes, as most historians of friendship have observed, friendship often transcends, friendship seems to be like one social relationship that most, I don't say reliably, but like most vividly succeeds at what sincerity tries to do, which is to leap over um, boundaries of, uh, I say, to leave over historically determined categories like race, gender, class, et cetera. Like we imagine that friendship can be the basis for human relationships across those historically informed differences. Like I'm basically on board with the possibility that friendship can do that. Um, but I don't 
it, how do I say this? But I am especially wary of arguments that want to insist that without a full accounting of how much work those friendships are and the conditions in which that work seems to be worthwhile. And what I found in these colonial texts was that the individuals who wrote about friendship with the greatest intensity, like they weren't the only people who wrote about friendship, but the individuals who wrote about friendship with greatest intensity were also individuals who seemed like most abandoned by their social worlds. And this like, oh, wow, like this really like slowed me down um, because it suggested that the reason that any of us need friends is has something to do with the failures of other relationships and institutions, again, shaped by history that are supposed to support this. Um, and like, I don't think, and like all of the people that I read about in that fifth chapter, I, I call them theorists of friendship, but I don't, it's not like I think that they were sitting there like coming up with like, you know, Emersonian theories of like the friend. Uh, mostly I just think they, they spent a lot of time thinking and feeling dissatisfied and then thinking about their dissatisfactions with the expectations for the friendships that they did have um, and the expectations um, that the work they put into it would yield rewards. Um, I think um, most, most of the individuals I write about in that chapter um, I got the impression, and I, I would love to argue with someone about this if they, you know, if they want to go through the trouble of reading all those primary texts. One gets the impression in reading those texts that um, at the end of the day, the people who wrote most intensely about friendship kind of just wanted to be left alone. Um, and that, like, man, that really made me sad <laughs> um, because they can testify most brilliantly to the yields of friendship and they also seem most defeated by the labor it required. And I think what I wanted there personally, also maybe intellectually, uh, what I wanted to get at there, um, if there's gonna be like a moral to this story um, is that in everyday life, um, the people who we call our friends, and also we as their friends, um, the work of friendship is actually sometimes like work. And, um, and that work requires, among other things, um, remaining sensitive to how the other party sometimes kind of just wants to be left alone. Um, and, um, and the other party might, you know, like, depending on how they feel on any given morning, uh, they might not feel like the work they're putting into friendship is worthwhile. And that um, doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. It just means that um, the, those labors deserve recognition, I think, is what I wanted to get at. And, and now you say that uh, after reading with uh, happiness here and friendship and other topics, now you are working on a book on unhappiness. Can you tell us a little bit about it without the spoilers or, or not? Every, every, <laughs> everything. <laughs> um, I mean, spoilers, I don't know. I would love, I to say, I would love to write the sort of academic monograph where people were like, and I'm not going to say anything more to not ruin the surprise, <laughs> right? Like the way that we talk about like horror movies or whatever. Um, I, um, yeah, like I, there are a lot of different ways that I'm narrating the origin of the second book. I think most um, factually, the second book originated, the idea for the second book originated out of an article that is recently out at J19 um, 
the Journal of 19th Century Americanists. Um, and um, it's another, I got to this text through the concepts that I was thinking about in the third chapter, which was the chapter of the first book, the chapter on indigenous converts. Uh, but I was reading a 19th century conversion narrative by a woman named Mary Appis. Um, She's a Pequot woman. She's the wife of uh, William Appis, who um, is a Pequot activist in um, 19th century um, Connecticut, I think it is. Um, and um, Mary Appis, she writes this conversion narrative and it's a pretty standard conversion narrative. She describes like a life prior to um, really thinking about the Christian deity and then describes a sense of dissatisfaction after encountering um, the Christian deity's injunctions to um, follow him. And um, and then she describes the specific attractions of Methodism. Um, and I um, I got to slow down in, in reading Mary Appice's text. Um, I got to slow down with a feature of Methodism that is like routinely misunderstood by early Americanist historians, especially early Americanist historians of, um, let's just say subaltern um, communities in colonial America. Um, I'm thinking here black indigenous and like in some cases poor whites. Um, a, a feature of their attraction to Methodism that um, has not been, at least within our intellectual um, conversations, has not really been recognized. I think most, um, most historians of early America tend to think that early Americans who um, were early American, early Americans who pursued Methodist Christianity did so because of Methodism's camp meetings, which were these like, let's just say quarterly um, revivals where there would be a lot of singing, a lot of dancing, a lot of shouting, a lot of tears, like intense emotional moments. And um, one of the things that really frustrated me about scholarship on um, Black and Indigenous, but especially Indigenous conversion to Methodism, was the assumption that the reason, not even in some cases assumption, in some cases like explicit argumentation, that um, Indigenous people found Methodism attractive because Methodism was intensely and expressively emotional. And I think that argument is fine, but I also just seems kind of condescending. Um, I, um, and when I read Mary Appice's text, she describes an aspect of Methodism that no one in early American studies has really noticed, which is that one of Methodism's features distinct from other uh, denominations of Christian practice, um, one of Methodism's features was that it offered regular group therapy. And I'm, 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 you know, I'm kind of joking. I'm using a colloquial term that was not available in the 19th century, um, but it featured like institutionalized small groups where individual lay people met with each other, the same people on a regular basis. And they met with each other more often than they met with a minister or a large congregation because in the early days, Methodism had no churches. Um, they met with each other on a, on a roughly weekly basis. And they checked in with each other about their lives and about their um, attempts to live good, happy, fulfilling lives. Um, and they were invited to, they invited each other um, to say more about those lives. And um, if you've read any Foucault, you know 
that this is a classic incitement to discourse. And if you remember specific passages of Foucault's history of sexuality, you will know that this is actually Foucault's paradigmatic incitement to discourse because he talks briefly and like opaquely, but specifically he describes um, Wesleyan pedagogy. And what he means by Wesleyan pedagogy is like the, um, the practices innovated by John and Charles Wesley, who were the fathers of Methodism, um, to uh, create piety among Protestants in the 17th, 18th, well, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and so Mary Appis, um, she reveals something about A, Methodism, B, um, Foucauldian discourse, um, and C, I think also the experience of the soul. Um, in her narrative, when she says, almost explicitly, the thing that attracted me to Methodism was that there were other people around to listen to me talk about my soul. Um, and that seemed to me to be a story about um, a story about the history of the soul that seemed worth telling that would allow us to integrate things like loneliness, the desire to be recognized and seen, um, chronic and historically unformed unhappiness, alienation, and dispossession to like tell a story about the synthesis of those aspects of historical experience that are really vital and potent and that um, I think we tend not to, is this, they, they are like a spark of lived experience that we tend not to, oh, this we is, we tend to expect these sparks mostly from our literature. Um, and I think that studying, I have a suspicion, a hunch that studying the documentary texts of early America um, will show us that everyday people experienced and thought about and reflected um, critically on those aspects of um, those aspects of unsold experience that um, I think we stand to learn from in the present. So thank you very much, Anna, for speaking to us about your book and your new book about happiness and happiness and, and colonial America. It's been a pleasure having you with us today. Yeah, totally. No, I'm sorry. I realize my answers have been very long, <laughs> but I, um, I I appreciate any opportunity to talk through um, these uh, these concepts. I feel like I'm like taking little notes. Like, oh, remember to say that in your introduction. Um, I uh, I totally appreciate this. Thank you for taking the time, Carmen, out of your um, busy Wednesday evening because I know it's. <laughs> thank Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you with us. So this is a, an interview about Amor, the Search of Sincerity in Colonial America by Anna Swartz, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Cool. Thank awesome. you. Thank you. Talk later. Bye.